All thanks and praise are yours, God. King of all, King of kings, Lord of lords, Jehovah Nisi, the banner that we rally under. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. We thank you that we get to meet corporately as the church, Big C, to lift you up, to praise your name, and proclaim you as our God, our good, good God. We love you so much, and we thank you. We say these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Morning, church. Man, do we have an awesome guest today. I am so excited to introduce him. If uh, I didn't know it, but uh, evidently, uh, Pastor Eric, he must play baseball. I was a football player. I thought baseball was a pretty boy sport, so if you're a baseball player, sorry. <laughs> what I mean is our lineup. Pastor Eric put a lot of thought into the lineup, the lineup, the batting order, if you will, for the next couple of weeks while he was away. And uh, if you don't know much about baseball, I know just enough to get myself in trouble. Um, but your first two uh, batters, their job is to get on base. And if the base is our heart, last week, Pastor Jeff, uh, Brother Jeff uh, Godwin, he brought it, and he put it on our heart last week. And the message today is going to be put on your heart, too. And it's a powerful one, so get ready. Uh, I am so excited about this. I met this gentleman for the first time in our men's group. We were going around to different churches, and uh, different guys from these churches were bringing the message. And, and uh, he spoke on dying to yourself one time. It was one of the most powerful words I'd ever heard from, from a pastor. I didn't know he was the pastor of the church at that time, uh, but it was awesome. Uh, he's a husband. He's a dad. Um, he is a pastor at Eastern Hills Church, and uh, we are so excited to have him here. When I was doing my uh, research, my investigation, <laughs> he knows what I did in a previous life. I told him earlier I didn't, I didn't do a deep dive. I just did about a 20-year background check. <laughs> I joke, it was only about 10, so you're good. Um, anyways, I know this man's heart, and you're going to hear it today. He is phenomenal. We are so excited to have him. I want to introduce to you Pastor Billy Gurley from Eastern Hills. And I failed him miserably earlier when I didn't pray over him when he came in. So I'm going to pray over him now. Heavenly Father, I just want to lift this brother up to you, Lord. He is an awesome power of God, an instrument of warfare in your spiritual kingdom, Lord. Us today, Lord, and if there's anything in this room that is not of you, Lord, we just ask that you burn up and burn it out and sweep that floor and get it out of here, Lord. I want to ask everybody to uh, open their ears and their hearts and their minds and, and uh, have wide eyes to see what the Lord is presenting to us, Lord. We love you and we thank you for absolutely everything. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Dan Springs, how are you today? Second service. All right. I've heard this is the cool one. We'll see about that. Well, greetings from the Eastern Hills Church, your brothers and sisters, a couple streets over. And I want you to know something. We're a fan of what God's doing in this place. It's, 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 it's one of them now, my Sunday morning routines. You know, after I get through everything that God's doing at Eastern Hills, I get online. I went, oh, what God do at Sand Springs today? So I'm kind of like, you know, I'm a creeper, sorry, <laughs> creeping on you every week, seeing what God's doing, because I tell you what, every time I see a life transformed, every baptism, every deliverance, everything that I'm hearing and seeing, you just need to know there's a cheerleader across town going, yes, 
And I am so excited to be here today. I love your pastor, not just because I have beard envy, uh, but he's a, boy, he's a powerhouse, isn't he? He's got a fire in him. And you know, though, why I believe that's sustainable in him? Because you know some people, you know, they're just kind of hyper and they just kind of flare up and flare out real quick and all that. But, but not Pastor Eric. That's very consistent. You know, you know what my theory is? Humility. Your pastor's humble. And you know humility attracts all kinds of good things. Pride the opposite. But humility, I love that man. I love his wife. He's becoming one of my best friends in town. And it's an honor to serve beside him. It's an honor to serve beside you. This morning, uh, it was so funny. I got to say this. You know, that was a stripped down set, worship set. Well, y'all want to see stripped down. Come visit us sometime. <laughs> It was so funny. Good old Acapella Church Cross boy. I'm like, that stripped down? Oh, okay, cool. I like it. <laughs> Love your worship. Uh, uh, we'll be in Romans chapter 8 this morning. So turn your Bibles or your devices, whatever your preference is there. Now, Romans chapter 8 is obviously the heart of the book of Romans. It's actually the heartbeat of it all. But I would submit to you this morning that I believe Romans chapter 8, that one chapter is actually the heartbeat of all the epistles, of all the letters of the New Testament. A theologian was once asked if he could just pick one book or one chapter out of the Bible to be on a deserted island for the rest of his life with. Uh, that man said Romans chapter 8. And you know, I'll probably pick Sermon on the Mount first, but if I had to pick the epistles, it would definitely be Romans chapter 8. It is the most doctrinally dense chapter, I believe, in the entire New Testament. And as we look at it this morning, I always kind of present it this way. It's like, I mean, Romans is full of, of basically a doctrinal thesis or a doctrinal treaty for the next generation of Christians that will be coming in the second century. But when it gets to Romans chapter 8, I, I kind of see Paul kind of pausing there and saying, hey, let's take a walk with the Holy Spirit. Because Romans chapter 8 is about the Holy Spirit from beginning to end. And the Holy Spirit this morning wants to give you assurances. So I'm a visiting preacher. I don't have to preach the hard ones. I got to preach the good ones, all right? He wants to give you assurances this morning. Does anybody need a sure thing? I don't know. The older I get, the more I want to invest my time, talents, and treasures in things that are going to last. Because I've experienced too many things in my life that I thought would last and they didn't. Remember that passage in Hebrews about shaking everything that can be shaken? So only that which is eternal remains. I, I want to invest my time and my heart in the sure things, the things that are actually going to last. And that's what Romans 8 is all about. The bookends of the, of, of the chapter are, it starts with no condemnation. And guess what it ends with? No separation. Just that alone, right, is good news. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And in the passage we're going to read this morning, nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And these are the sure things in this uncertainty, in all the things even going on this week that would might disrupt our spirits in some way. There's a sure thing. God is a sure thing. So this morning I bring you not only this, it starts off in Romans chapter 8 of words of life. It's a sure thing. 
is that we're going to have life, and we can have life right now. Then he goes on to words of adoption. You know you have a place in the family of God, and how cool it is that you have a seat at our Father's table. Come on. And then it moves on from there to words of glory. Talk about God's glory, but that he's actually deposited a little piece of his glory, a little piece of his spiritual DNA inside of you to carry around as his sons and daughters. But Romans chapter 8 ends with words of victory. Does anybody need victory? Does anybody, let me rephrase, does anybody need to be convinced they already have victory this morning? You see, these are, if you knew that you were going to win the battle, would it change the way you fought? If you knew that, that there was no way that that God was going to lose this. And because you're associated with him and his family, there's no way that you could lose. Would it make you be a little bit more bold? Maybe take a few more risks. And what I mean by that is to be bold and risky in your love. Because that's the weapon we fight with, is love. I mean, would it, would it change things to know the battle has already been won? I heard a preacher say recently, and I, I believe it, the battle has already been won. It's just our job to implement the victory. You ever think about reconstruction after a war? I mean, those don't make the history books enough. You think about World War II and and occupied Germany, where we occupied it, and we reconstructed Germany. You think about in the Civil War, how the North occupied the South and did years and decades of reconstruction. And, And in that time, actually, you hear horror stories because people have just fought a hard battle, and sometimes they're bitter. And the people that are bitter against you are supposed to reconstruct you. And there's horror stories of reconstructions throughout history. But you know what it says in Isaiah 61? The victory's already been won. But we're here to rebuild the ancient ruins that have been devastated for generations. And you know how we do it? Is that we love. You know how we do it? We preach good news to the poor. We bind up the brokenhearted, and we set the captives free. That's the reconstruction plan of the kingdom of God. That's what victorious people do with their time and talents and treasures to rebuild the ancient ruins of this old world. So today we talk about victory. So I bring you to Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Can I read the word of God over you before I interpret it? Can the Holy Spirit speak to you before even I do? That'd be awesome, right? So listen as I read these words. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is the one that condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No In all things, we are more than conquerors 
through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You feel it in your soul. Did it penetrate? It's a sure thing. Our victory is assured through Jesus Christ and what we believe. And we need to take that assurance to change not only what is to come in the future, but what's coming this afternoon and the next day. Because I'm telling you, a mindset of victory will change the way you fight the war, will change the way you choose to implement the victory. As I read Romans chapter 8, I see a series of questions, don't you? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can bring a charge against us? Who can separate us from the love of God through Jesus Christ, our Lord? And, and to me, it's almost not just hypothetical questions. I believe these are leading questions, almost like you would get in a courtroom, almost when an attorney is trying to make his case. And he's trying to lead you to the obvious answer to the question, the obvious truth in his defense of his client. And I do. I just see all kinds of courtroom terminology, condemn and charge and, and, and all everything that we see here. So this morning, I want to invite you into the courtroom of God. I know courtrooms can be scary places, can't they? Some of you have sat in them, haven't you? A little bit of uncertainty there. You think about the authority of the, the jury's verdict or especially the authority of that judge sitting on a bench and your whole life is in a balance in that moment. But this morning, we get to walk into the courtroom victorious. You know why? If God is for us, you finish the verse. Yeah. Because here's the cool thing. You're a defense attorney is sitting at the right hand of God. Amen. Do you know how well this is going to go for you? <laughs> and so today, I invite you into the courtroom and know that Jesus is the only authority that holds both justification and judgment. And this morning, with that confidence, we enter in. So first of all, we talk about victory in Christ, judicial Position in Hebrews chapter 31, verse 34, it makes it very, or in Romans 8, 31 to 34, it makes it very clear that um, Jesus is at the right hand of God. But in Colossians and Ephesians, when it mimics this verse and talking about being at the right hand of God, in those verses, it actually talks about his posture. What's the posture of Jesus at the right hand of God? Someone. He's seated. What does it mean when a lawyer sits down? finished. In courtroom, in courtroom terminology, it's settled. Imagine how much uncertainty is taken out of the situation when the, when the verdict has already been settled and he's sitting at the right hand of God. But my question this morning, just because it's settled in the heavenlies, that doesn't mean it's settled in your heart, does it? So this morning, my goal, my heart for you is this thing gets settled in the core of who you really are. And see, because in this courtroom, some people want justice, don't they? 
Okay, just imagine if it was your child that was killed or molested or hurt in any form or fashion and you're sitting in the courtroom. What's the one thing you want as a dad? What's the one thing you want as a mom? You want justice. Justice is not a bad thing. In fact, all through the Bible, as many times as it talks about God being a gracious God, a loving God, it talks about God being a what? Just God. You see, he will never sacrifice his justice for his grace or his grace for his justice. You know what it says in the Bible? In John chapter one, Jesus came full of what? Both grace and truth. Now, this isn't 50-50. This isn't a balancing act. In some form or fashion, when Jesus shows up on the scene, he's 100% grace all the time. And he's 100% truth all the time. And so this courtroom is full of justice, but it's also full of grace thinking that it's your child on trial. And you know they did it. What would you do as a parent? Would you throw yourself at the mercy of the court on behalf of your children? Would you try even to take their place, perhaps? And anything, everything inside of you just wants, please, grace, please, grace, please, mercy. In this courtroom, isn't biased either way. It's 100% grace. It's 100% truth. And it's justice reigns. You see, but there's more than just the defense attorney that's in this courtroom. There is a prosecuting attorney. There is. It boggles my mind that he's even allowed in the courtroom, but he is. Many times you see it throughout Scripture. And this is not just one prosecuting attorney. There's actually two. Let's talk about the one you're thinking about right now. Let's talk about the old devil. Let's talk about Satan. Let's talk about Lucifer, the accuser. It says that in many ways, in many fashions throughout the Bible, Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1, he is there in the courtroom of God accusing the high priest Joshua, who represents the spiritual vitality of the people. Revelation Chapter 12, verse 10, he is called the accuser of the brethren or the brothers and sisters, the family of God, constantly bringing accusations against us as the church. First Peter chapter five, verse eight, it says that the enemy or the adversary, depending on your translation, he goes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Do you know what that adversary, that word adversary or enemy in the original language means an, a complainant bringing a lawsuit? It's someone who's coming to sue you. It's someone who's taking you to court so that he could devour you and devour your spiritual vitality. But here's the good news. Our sin, if we're a Christian is inadmissible in court. And every time the accuser brings up the past, and I'm just talking if the past was yesterday, by the way. I'm talking about long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. (laughs) Thank you, science fiction people. I'm talking about yesterday. It's inadmissible in court because Jesus bought your past. And any time we tread in the past, We're trespassing. And your defense attorney will call it every time. Objection. And the judge will say, inadmissible. Every single time. That's the kind of thing that we have against the accuser because we are not judged on our own righteousness, are we? 
Whose righteousness are we judged against? Jesus' righteousness becomes ours. And we're judged according to that. A caveat real here, real quick. In my estimation, there is only one dangerous position you can put yourself in in the courtroom of God. And it's self-righteousness. Because you know what self-righteousness says? Self-righteousness, I'm good enough. I did this, I did this, I did this. To bring up a passage in the Bible of someone, other people standing before Jesus going, but, but Lord, I, I cast out demons in your name. Oh Lord, I, 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 I. And what did Jesus say? I don't even know you. The most dangerous position that you can have is self-righteousness because you know what you're proclaiming. I want to be judged on the merit of my own righteousness instead of Jesus Christ. That's why self-righteous religion might be the most dangerous position in all the world, even over sinners and worldly folks. We are judged not on our righteousness, but on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so I love it when the enemy shut down. I love it when the enemy wants to bring up my past and my failures. I have a bunch of them, by the way. Objection is made inadmissible in court, but that's not the only prosecuting attorney. And this might shock you, but I believe the second prosecuting attorney might be more dangerous than the first. Who's the second? Because we can't forget. And sometimes we still live with the consequences of our sin, the separation, the division that was a result of it. And we sit there, and you know, and and I tell people this in pastoral counseling, it's not that, that you just sinned once but you reliving your sin in your head, you're committing that sin to hundreds and thousands of times over because you're replaying it over and over and over in your mind. 1 John 3.20, praise God. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts. And he, listen to this, he knows everything. Are you going to you get into a courtroom of law? Are you just going to be an open book and share everything bad you've ever done? Your lawyer would probably advise against that, right? You know, we don't need to talk about that. You know, we could we could throw that under the rug or whatever. But here's the here's the the, the most amazing thing, is that there's some sins that I'm not even thinking about. There are some sins that I don't know the ramification and what it did to people and how it hurt people as it rippled out. And maybe that's grace that I don't even understand the total severity or the total ramifications of my sin. But here's what I'm trying to get at. God does. He knows everything. And he's bigger than your heart. And it's his verdict that matters in that courtroom. Listen to me. Not yours. There is something that we need to understand. And if you don't listen to anything else that I've said, please remember this. Authority is a big deal in a courtroom. Just go into a courtroom and you find out real quick who's boss. They'll tell you what you can and can't do, what you wear and can't wear, how to sit, what to say. I mean, it's 
A lot of authority. Listen to me. You do not have the authority to condemn anyone, including yourself. And if you have the audacity to go into the courtroom of God and start condemning yourself, you will be held in contempt. Your self-condemnation is actually contemptible in the courtroom and in the throne room of God. And let me tell you something about my God. He will bring order to his courtroom. Stop it. You do not have that spiritual, judicial authority to condemn yourself or anyone else. I love Isaiah 50, kind of wraps it all up. I have to think Paul was thinking of this when he wrote Romans 8. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who will condemn me? They'll all wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. I love the end of it because guess what? Your accusers won't last. Your accusers aren't eternal. And there'll be a day that you live without any accusation against you. That's victory in Christ's judicial position. But we also not only have victory in that, we have victory in our relational position. At the end of the chapter, you, you see this word separation. Nothing's going to separate you from God. It's actually a very relational term for the most intimate relationships like marriage. In other words, you could probably translate this word divorce. And the assurance of God, church, bride of Christ, Jesus will never divorce you. Ever. He'll never separate himself from you. He'll always be loyal. He'll always be true. Even when we're not. And we see this strong terminology here that he will never distance himself from you. He'll never, he'll never stick baby in a corner. <laughs> Don't watch that show. It wasn't really that. Because you belong to him. Now, there's, I, I see this other word in here. It says more than conquerors. And, and, and I don't know about you, but I like to ask questions of the text, okay? When I read something, used to, I didn't understand it. I just go, well, that's weird. And I just keep reading, right? I don't do that anymore. I just plant. When I don't understand something or something doesn't make sense to me in the Bible, I mean, I just plant there because I know God's got something good for me if I'll go on a treasure hunt, okay? And so I, I just want to encourage you to ask questions of the text. The, te- the question ha- I have is how can you be more than a conqueror? I mean, a conqueror is a victor, a, someone who's standing head and shoulders above the crowd at the end and you win. How can you be more than that? Well, if you look at the context, I think you'll understand Because sandwiched in between two lists of the schemes of the enemy to separate you from God is you are more than a conqueror. Do you know what that means? Every ploy of the enemy 
to separate you from intimacy with your heavenly father. You're not only, not only is that goal not going to be accomplished at the end of your struggle, at the end of the resistance, at the end of your valley of disappointment, guess what happens? You were closer to the father than you were when it started. I love it. When our God takes the schemes of the enemy and turns it out on him and makes it an, a, an object of oneness, an object of intimacy instead of an object of separation. And so as we go through this list here really quickly, you're going to see the word more than conquers. It's the Greek word hypernikeo. Hyper, got any school teachers in the room? You know what hyper is. It's beyond the acceptable limits of activity and all of that. It's hyper, all right? The, the, the Greek word nikeo is next. It's where we get the word Nike, which means victory. This is hyper victory. Whatever the devil comes at you at to separate you from God is going to backfire on him. And you're going to be closer to God if you just come to this disappointment, if you'll just come to this struggle with a mustard seed of faith. So let's look at this list just really quickly here. What are the things that will separate us on these, uh, these things? Trouble. Well, these are external pressures. These are pressures that just come from life, whether it be relationships in your life, whether it be work struggles, whether it be financial struggles, whether you name it, it's anything that you can obviously see and touch and experience. These are the external pressures that want to rob you of your intimacy with God. But the next one's hardship. You know what that actually means? Most scholars believe it's internal pressures. That's your thought life. That's what you're doing on the inside. And again, I think that's way more destructive than what's going on that you can actually see. Another one, persecution, which is specifically in this verse, a very narrow translation of suffering for Jesus. It's something that I'm seeing actually kind of in our post-Christian society. I'm seeing more and more of people being persecuted because of their morals, because of their ideas, because of their Christian beliefs. Famine's the next one. Lack of provision. I don't know why it works this way. But where did you experience Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides? When you were in plenty or when you were in need? Why is it that when God needed to train the children of God, he had to take them to the desert first? And I love it when the enemy puts a famine in front of you. I'm like, haven't you learned? This is stupid. You put a famine and lack of provision in front of a believer, and he's going to experience Jehovah Jireh. I mean, that's just, it just doesn't even make sense to me anymore that the enemy would even try that with us. Nakedness, that means being exposed or vulnerable, right? Who doesn't? I hate vulnerability sometimes. I don't want you to know everything about me, right? Uh, if you own a business, an exposure is a bad thing. It's a liability, isn't it? But yet in that moment of vulnerability, when, when all the city knows all your stuff, guess what happens? You got nothing to hide. And what a prime position for God to work in your life and show off his glory in you. What about dangerous sword? This is specifically execution. Um, I'm studying church history right now, and, and I'm going to be teaching a course on it in the fall, and I'm amazed at how many people were converted as they watched the way that Christians die. It's amazed me. They just, the grace and the love, it didn't they hurt and they suffered, sure, but it was powerful. But, but again, 
If the worst thing the enemy could do for you is manipulate situations and circumstances where you lose your life, at the end of that, are you closer to God or further away? Amen. Nothing. Nothing he can do can keep you from God. What about the other list on the other side of more than conquerors? Not death or life. These are physical factors again. These are things that come against you, especially not your death, but especially the death of the people that you love. Obviously, if you don't grieve, if you grieve with no hope, it's going to separate you from God. Oh, but we grieve. Don't get me wrong. We weep with those who weep. We're called to grieve, but we grieve with hope. Angels or demons, well, these are the spiritual factors. These are the unseen factors. As a preacher or a teacher, it's really difficult because we gotta, we got to have a fine line. We can't talk about the old demons and the fallen angels too much because, honestly, we don't want to give them enough credit. We fix our eyes on Jesus, not the enemy, right? But it also says don't be unaware of the devil's schemes. And you are spiritually naive if you think that you're going through your day unopposed in the unseen realm. Every single day, forces are coming against you that you can't see, that you know nothing about, that are keeping you from intimacy and connection with your Father. And, but it's saying those things are defeated. Uh, the president of the future, that's the what if statements. Well, what if this happens? Well, what if this happens? Let me tell you, the what if is home field advantage for the spirit of fear. Don't play the game. We don't, we don't say what if. We say Who? We ask the right questions. Powers. These are any physical or spiritual power that you think is or you have the mindset of that is more powerful than you. Height or depth. You know what this is? I believe it's science. Got any intellectuals out there? Got any people who, who like to think and reason? You know, usually the people that are worshiping going, okay, you know, you, know you, you, you love the Holy Spirit, but you love to think, right? Right? You, you're you're, you're reason-based people. Okay, science is not the enemy. Truth is not the enemy of God. He actually is truth. So whether you take the Hubble telescope and you look into the vastness of the universe, I'm not afraid to look in Hubble because you know what I'm going to find? God. And then I'm not afraid to, to take the most powerful microscope and look down into biology and look back into chemistry and go down as far as I can. We know what happens when we bring disorder to the atom. Imagine who's keeping that all together right now. So where you zoom out or you zoom in, guess what you find? You find God. Hey, don't run from science. Embrace it. Have fun and find your father. And then anything else, just in case it didn't make the list. <laughs> Nothing can separate you. And everything on this list is an opportunity for intimacy with God. If you can just bring to the table a mustard seed of faith. You know, I was in Israel a few months ago, and we actually picked mustard seeds from the side of the path where we were walking. We broke and opened the pods, and man, those suckers are tiny. And I think sometimes it'd be really easy for us to lose that little mustard seed. But all we have to do is just hold on. I know you might have some doubts. You need to work on that. And, and, and I know you might have some fears, obviously, right? We're human. Work on that. But you hold on to your mustard seed. Believe in when you don't understand. Praise him amidst the pain. And you'll look and you'll open your hand one day and that mustard seed has grown and multiplied. And all of a sudden you realize that through this situation, 
you've met a part of your father that you didn't even know before. So today, how about we take a victory meal together? You know what it says in Psalms 23? Does Psalms 23 talk about the valley? Does it talk about the pain? Does it talk about the things that might separate from God? But then it says this, he prepares a table before me, what? In the presence of my enemies. You know what the Bible also says about this? Every time you eat and you drink this, guess what you're making? A proclamation until the Lord comes. So what are we proclaiming this morning about his death? We're proclaiming victory. You're letting anyone know, your brothers and sisters, your family, your spouse, and any unseen critters, I've got victory through the body of Jesus Christ. Because that tomb is empty. And he, in his physical body, is seated next to the right hand of God Almighty. And because of that, when I eat this bread, I commemorate and remember his victory. And by doing so, proclaim my own. So, Father, we bring up the body of Christ right now. And we eat this supper in the presence of our enemies. And we proclaim victory through the body of Jesus Christ. The word did become flesh and make his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only through the grace of truth. He died. He buried. But that tomb is empty. And he is coming back in that body. So, Lord, we remember your body. We proclaim your victory as we eat. And who would think? Who would think that blood is victorious? The world wouldn't say that, right? When you see blood, it's not usually a good thing. Except in this meal. Because this blood means victory for us. It means it's not my righteousness because I've been bought. I've been paid for. It is done. It is finished. And now I can just implement the victory of God in my life. And so, Father, we come and we take the cup of victory together this morning. And there's my prayer. As we drink this juice that represents your blood, Jesus, may victory saturate our soul. May victory create metanoia, may create repentance in front of us right now so that we change the way we think and we think like victors instead of victims. Let the blood of Jesus do its work in Jesus' name.